Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we learned in the, I think it was the second, well, we learned through the, the classes, I think it was two or three classes on dependent origination, that the, the common human problem that resolves, well, results in self-loathing uh, is ignorance of Four Noble Truths. So the dependent origination, the Paticca Samuppada Sutta and other suttas uh, teach that it is from ignorance of Four Noble Truths that we create fabrications in our mind, a corrupted view of who we are in relation to the world. And that view is corrupted because we attach ourselves to, to thoughts, words, and ideas that are meant to be impersonal. In other words, human life is impersonal and things happen that we take personally. And as soon as we start coloring it with a personalization, making something, trying to make something to be what we want it to be, more of something, less of something, or to get out of the, the ambiguity of what's occurring, meaning in this moment I'm bored, I need something to distract me. Those are all qualities of mind that are rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths that we think in a compulsive way that we have to resolve in some way through acquisition or continued aversion, keeping things out of our minds. And never, ever allowing ambiguity or boredom to come into our life. So uh, companies like uh, Google and Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, these are the, the new modern zillionaires because they figured out a very, and they knew what they were doing, they figured out in an algorithmic way a very, very powerful way of distracting people, and they've made zillions of dollars off of it. And people know it, um, but yet, you know, they still do it. Um, if you are, if you want to learn more about just that outside of the Dhamma, uh, "Stolen Focus" by Johann Hari is a great book that everybody should read, because we're almost everybody is caught up in the addiction of uh, social media, and it really is a not, it's not a good thing to be addicted to. Anyway. Uh, the Dhamma will help you extricate yourself from that as well. So the, the um, defining characteristic of the meditation practice that Siddhartha Gautama used to awaken and then he taught, and it's the only meditation method that he taught, even though modern Buddhism claims an endless um, list of things that might be called meditation, and most of them are just uh, ritualistic practice. And again, it's not to diminish it, it's just not what we practice. We have a uh, a dynamic and vibrant meditation practice for one sole purpose, to deepen concentration, so that we can recognize in this moment when we're, when we're caught up in eye-making. And again, a mind that isn't concentrated wouldn't be able to do that. That makes sense. And a mind that is can, and it does. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying in Sabati, in Jita's Grove, and Nathapandika's monastery. He addressed those gathered. Friends, Venerable Saraputta is wise, he is of great, deep, and penetrating discernment or wisdom. For two weeks, Saraputta, secluded from sensuality and from unskillful mental qualities, gained profound insight into unskillful mental qualities, one after another. Why is that important? I mean, you can almost every sutta that are the Buddha's words, the first paragraph or even the first sentence 
will describe the importance or point to the importance of understanding what the Buddha is teaching here. And so we can't resolve a, um, all the compulsive and fabricated issues that a mind that's rooted in ignorance will develop and call itself. But we can one after another. And why is Buddha, Buddha making that distinction? Because it is in this moment that distress or distraction, stress in some manner, is arising. And it's because of eye making in that moment. And in this moment, I can recognize that I had a great talk with Julia about doing that. And I, everyone, you know, one form, one way, in one class or another, you've described this process of recognizing that you are falling into wrong speech or wrong action. Or even it might just be a thought that you recognize about another person that is unskillful and you take a breath. And in that moment, you're interrupting your own conditioned thinking. And in that moment, you are bringing grace and, and, and peace into the world because you're not contributing to the stress and suffering that is already present. And in that way, we awaken, we gain full human maturity. But it is always at that point of contact that we can practice the Dhamma. And there, we cannot practice the Dhamma in the past. In other words, the Dhamma can't be used to heal past issues. Nothing can. There's, there's no way to heal the past. It's gone. We can only heal what we are representing to ourselves and to the world in this moment. And of course, we can't do anything about the future except prepare our minds through jhana meditation for the next moment and for the rest of our lives. But it is only in this moment that we have control and it is only in this moment a mind that is well concentrated, concentrated can practice the Dhamma. So again, any other meditation method simply wouldn't work. Even if you're doing something that you like and all your friends are doing it, if it's not jhana meditation with this focus, it's not going to work with this practice. And just a little background on Sariputta. Sariputta and Moggallana were contemporaries of the Buddha and practiced and, and studied with much the same teachers that the Buddha studied. So developed the same quality of mind. And they came to the Buddha shortly after the Buddha's awakening and uh, in two weeks studying with the Buddha and getting that the last bit of their understanding fine-tuned in this way towards Four Noble Truths they were able to awaken. And that's what the Buddha is referring to, that Sariputta, he just spent, basically what he's saying is, look at this guy, he spent two weeks with me and he focused intently on those two weeks and now he's given this presentation as now an arahant, an awakened human being. Sariputta, wise, of great deep and penetrating discernment and wisdom, clearly saw the arising, the establishment and the passing away of these mental qualities present in the first jhana. He noticed how these... I missed a section. I'm sorry, I missed a section. <laughs> See what happens when you're trying to get on TV and you mess it up. Sariputta, secluded from sensuality and from unskillful mental qualities, gained profound insight into unskillful mental qualities one after another. And, we, and Buddha describes that. Sariputta entered and remained in the first jhana. This first jhana is characterized by rapture, and a rather archaic word, but it's used so often that I didn't want to change it. Rapture in this sense does not mean the second coming or the apocalypse. It simply means joyful engagement with, in this sense, joyful engagement with our Dhamma practice. 
And we do that because we've taken true refuge. We understand that a human being awakened, and if a human being awakened, us as human beings can do the same. He left his Dhamma for us to practice and do as he did. And we have that third refuge of a well-informed and well-focused Sangha. And so that roof refuge is first established in that first level of jhana. The qualities present in the first jhana, directed thought and evaluation, rapture, pleasure, and now deepening concentration, contact, feeling, perception, intention, consciousness, desire, decision, persistence, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention were recognized one after another. What's the Buddha describing? He's describing recognizing, improving concentration and improving improving mindfulness, meaning special qualities of mind that lead to and contribute to ever-deepening Dhamma practice. Saraputta Wise of great, deep, and penetrating discernment clearly saw the arising, the establishment, and the passing away of these mental qualities present in the first jhana. Excuse me. So we recognize, as soon as we begin our practice, we are now joyfully engaged. It feels good. We're secluded. Our minds are starting to quiet. But we're still directing our thought back to our mind when we find that we're caught up in our thoughts or a thought attached to a feeling, an emotion. That's directed thought and it's evaluation. In that beginning phase, we're asking ourselves, am I doing this right? I like other things. Um, Or we might even be evaluating our thoughts. And that's where we get just get caught up in our thoughts. And we might spend 5, 10, or 15 minutes caught up in a thought or an emotion and just running with it. What do we do at that point? Is that meditation session lost? No. In fact, when we recognize that we've been caught up in our thoughts for 15 minutes and take a breath, we're practicing jhana meditation. Nowhere, and I've read a good deal of the suttas, nowhere have I ever read where Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, taught any length of time, meaning that when you begin meditation, you should be meditating for 20 minutes, and after a month, you should be 40 minutes, and after a year, an hour, and after five years, you know, no, I never heard anything. He said, find the root of a tree or an empty hut, establish seclusion, and do jhana. That's the Buddha's direction towards beginning a practice, and then he taught us the four foundations of mindfulness as jhana practice that we've touched on. He noticed how, the, how these qualities, even though these are, many of the qualities are so-called skillful qualities that we might want to hold on to, we simply recognize their development. He noticed how these qualities arose, came into play, and vanished. Having entered in the first jhana, rapture born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation, Saraputta remained free of affliction or aversion or aversion in regards to these qualities. Now he's describing the quality of meditation of an awakened human being, an arhat. He, he entered that jhana meditation and he remained free of attraction or aversion, greed or aversion, in regards to these qualities. Saraputta is no longer grasping after anything in his meditation practice. He's not grasping after deep and deeper levels of concentration. He's simply recognizing them as they're arising and passing away. He remained independent, detached, released, dissociated, and free of any barriers arising from attraction or aversion, from greed or aversion, from desire or aversion. 
He remained independent, detached, released, and dissociated and free of any barriers that would arise from attraction or aversion. That's the establishment of jhana. And now, having entered into the first jhana, the Buddha says, Sariputta understood there is deeper concentration. He recognized this is just the first jhana, as we do. He pursued this path and realized deeper concentration. What is the path? The jhana meditation as right meditation, the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path. Sariputta, secluded from sensuality and from unskillful mental qualities, with a stilling of directed thoughts and evaluations, entered and remained in the second jhana. And again, notice the Buddha didn't put any quality of time, such as the stilling of directed thoughts and evaluation for seven minutes or seven weeks, etc. He just said you did it. And you entered in and remained in the second jhana. That second jhana for most of us in the beginning will just be one breath or two breaths long. Why is it significant if it's, if it's so fleeting? It's, it's significant to recognize that you are deepening your concentration. And then your practice becomes self-directed and self-invigorated. You're no longer requiring even a skillful desire or your associations with your sangha to drive your meditation practice, your jhana practice, your dhamma practice. You're doing it because you're seeing the, the benefits directly. And you can't see the benefits directly if you don't know how to look for them. So we look for them when we are well concentrated. We know we are because we've taken a breath. And we're able to look at the quality of our minds dispassionately, no matter what it is. And in, in between this breath and the next breath, I might attach a thought to a feeling and so distracted myself into an emotion. And what do I do at that point? All is not lost. In fact, it's the opportunity again to practice the Dhamma and take a breath. Sariputta, secluded from sensuality and from unskillful mental qualities, with the stilling of directed thoughts and evaluations, entered and remained in the second jhana. This second jhana is characterized as rapture and pleasure now born of concentration. How is it now born of concentration? Because you recognize that first level of jhana. You recognize that your concentration is increasing. And now you're recognizing it on every, every meditation. And again, that's important to, to recognize it and keep going to recognize that your meditation practice is actually bearing fruit. The mind now united in the body, free of directed thought and evaluation, and internal assurance, because now you've given yourself the assurance that yes, I see the concentration deepening, I've been able to practice jhana. Now this inner poise, your self-assurance starts building. And this is something that is not always mentioned in the second jhana. So there's a, there's a little bit of a, um, I don't want to say an advanced teaching on jhana, but a little bit more nuanced teaching on jhana. And again, the reason why this is later on in this, in this study is now you can start seeing these things. Your body is now united. It's free of directed thought and evaluation in that one breath. I'm not thinking about my breath. I'm not thinking about getting caught up in my thoughts. I'm just in a breath. And as my concentration deepens, I might be able to do that for two breaths. Or three. And then I find out, I find that I'm caught up in a thought or a feeling arises. Or in some of us, it might be an actual feeling of pain that distracts us. It might mean that we have to move a little bit. And if you have to, don't be so rigid in your form. 
thinking that there's some value in never moving. You might have heard that from somewhere. You never heard it here. If you're feeling a little tense or tight, move around a little bit, stretch a little bit. And even if you have to, if your back tightens up, it's okay to stand up and sit back down. It's your meditation. What is important is that you're doing it in such a way that you can recognize when you're distracted by a feeling or a thought and come back to the sensation of breathing. Because that entire process is jhana meditation. That entire process. It's not just being mindful of your breath. Jhana meditation is more recognizing when you're not than it is recognizing when you are. Because if you're only recognizing when you are, you're either an awakened human being and it wouldn't matter, or you're distracted by your own thoughts about your practice. And again, take a breath, come back to the sensation of breathing. An internal assurance. The qualities present in the second jhana, this internal assurance, directed thought, evaluation, rapture, pleasure, concentration, Contact, feeling, perception, intention, consciousness, desire, decision, persistence, mindfulness, <gasps> equanimity, and attention were recognized one after another. In other words, we didn't get caught up when we recognized, wow, I'm really being persistent. Aren't I the greatest meditator? Or I just recognized that I didn't get distracted by a feeling. Aren't I the greatest meditator now? All of that is part of this. Or recognizing my intention is really strong today instead of letting your right intention continue to carry you. Because anytime you, it, it's okay to mention, to recognize these mental qualities in your meditation practice, but even the recognition of the skillful mental qualities that are developing can be a distraction or can be, um, it can make your meditation practice now just an ongoing practice of always sticking a badge on yourself instead of a dispassionate, practice of always deepening concentration because then then the the, the bad sticking the 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 honorifics that we keep giving ourselves when nobody else is is just that becomes a game then you're just trying to to see how many badges you can give yourself rather than just take a breath come back to the sensation of breathing so whether you can do that without interruption for one minute five minutes 20 minutes or an hour is good for you, but it doesn't mean anything as far as who you are or what you are in relation to your jhana practice. It's still a completely impersonal development. We should recognize it, but we shouldn't build an ego over it because what is more common than a breath? And the fact that we can um, knit two or three or five or 10 of them together just means we're good breathers. That's all. That we recognize our breath. And that's how we should treat it. It's the most significant and important thing I've ever done for myself. But it doesn't mean anything to anybody else, and it shouldn't. And we shouldn't expect it to. Except in how we carry ourselves and move through the world. With calm, with grace, with peace. With not bringing any cause, any harm into the world. These qualities were recognized one after another. Saraputta, wise of great, deep, and penetrating discernment, wisdom, clearly saw the arising, the establishment, and the passing away of these mental qualities present in the second jhana. He noticed how these qualities arose, how they came into play, how they became useful or um, manifest in my life. 
and how they vanished. They arose and passed away, like all phenomena. So even ever-deepening levels of concentration is something that is what? It's impermanent. And we should recognize it as such. If it wasn't impermanent, the Buddha would teach one jhana, it would be the only thing he ever taught, and he never would have taught anything after that, because that would be all we need. But we need ever-deepening concentration. But he noticed how these qualities arose, came into play and vanished, having entered in the second jhana, rapture board of concentration, free from directed thought and evaluation, Saraputta remained free of attraction or aversion in regard to these qualities. He just kept going. He remained independent, detached, released, dissociated, and free of any barriers that might arise from attraction or aversion. Having entered into the second jhana, Saraputta understood there is deeper concentration. He took a breath. And he pursued this path and realized deeper concentration. He had the experience. That's what the Buddha is saying. Saraputta continued his practice and he realized the fruits of his practice. Saraputta, secluded from sensuality and from unskillful mental qualities, with the fading of rapture and remaining and remaining equanimous, balanced, mindful, alert, sensitive to pleasure in the body, no longer grasping after it, but sensitive when it arises. Sensitive simply means that I'm present. I'm, I have the present quality of mind that I can actually be sensitive to what's arising. That there's a difference between sensitive, sensitivity, and grasping after and constantly feeding sensuality. One is using my senses the way they were intended, and the other is completely giving in to my senses and living a life based on only what satisfies me or what I try to avoid and achieve that. That's the difference between... And it takes sensitivity to know when you're giving in to sensuality or not. All right? it's not, I'm not playing with words at all, but using those two words, because they're two different words, to make a distinct point. Mindful and alert, sensitive to pleasure in the body, he entered and remained in the third jhana. The third jhana is characterized as equanimous, mindful, resting in a pleasant abiding. Again, no time frame, but we simply have deepened our concentration where it's equanimous. It's pleasant. There's nothing going on. There's no distraction. There's no, there's no um, compulsion, compulsion towards the next breath. There's just the next breath. And that calm abiding, that pleasant abiding, is important to recognize, whether it's for one breath or two or three or for ten minutes. But again, the length of time isn't important, but recognizing it is. And it's good to recognize it for 10 minutes as opposed to one. One, maybe the better word is it's, it's skillful, but again, all you're doing is something that is so ordinary. We do it every moment of our life, from birth to death, we breathe. And all we're doing here is using that most basic aspect of humanity, our breath, to do something incredibly profound, deep in concentration, so that we can actually have a human life actually be present for it, not distracted away from it. Saraputta is wise of great deep and penetrating discernment. He clearly saw the arising, the establishment, and the passing away of even these mental qualities. He noticed how these qualities arose, how they came into play, and how they vanished. Noticed how these qualities came. 
He noticed the arising and the passing away. He noticed the entire um, life cycle of one thought, and that's what he's describing, or the entire life life cycle of a um, perception or a mental quality, a, a completely formed mental quality, but one after another, one after another. He had the he had the, the mental wherewithal, the concentration, and the right view to recognize these one after another. And he noticed how these qualities came, arose. They came into play and they vanished. So even as our concentration is deepening and we're recognizing um, ever more pleasurable and useful qualities of mind, even these shouldn't be clung to or attached ourselves to. They should always be recognized in their arising and their passing away. And how do we do that? Because we have the perfect metaphor and the direct experience of impermanence every moment of our life. That isn't... I didn't exaggerate. That's impermanence, isn't it? Our own breath brings us the greatest wisdom we could ever have, the impermanence of all things, beginning with my breath. And what does it signify? in a direct and, and metaphorical way, my entire life. Because how do we describe life without getting into modern arguments? We typically, always, nobody... Ugh. Most people can't argue that life at least begins with the first breath and ends with the last breath. That's how we characterize the beginning of life and the end of life without getting into ridiculous arguments. So our breath defines our life. And so in this moment, when the only thing I'm mindful of is my breath, I'm connected to my life in the only way that I possibly can. Free of me. Free of all the qualities of eye-making that I created out of ignorance and attached to me that then manifest in meditation as these particular qualities that can be distracting. Having entered in the third jhana, equanimous, a pleasant abiding concentration, sensory contact, feelings, perceptions, intention, consciousness, desire, decision, persistence, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention were recognized one after another. Again, deepening concentration, but mental qualities arising and passing away. Life arising and passing away. Saraputta remained free of attraction or aversion in regards to these qualities. He remained independent, detached, released, dissociated, and free of any barriers arising from greed and aversion. Having entered into the third jhana, Saraputta understood there is deeper concentration. He pursued this path and realized deeper concentration. Furthermore, with the abandoning of joy and distress and with the abandoning of pleasure and pain, abandoning, I'm letting it go, I'm doing it, and it's mindful, abandoning something. Uh, to abandon something means we first have to own it, don't we? And then we can let it go. We first have to own these qualities of mind that used to distract us, and then we can abandon them one after another as we recognize them. Saraputta entered and remained into the, in the fourth jhana. This jhana is characterized as the purity of equanimity and refined mindfulness. So equanimity is deepening and we're recognizing it at a 
at a, um, a developing level of purity. And how do, how do you describe that? You can't until you experience it. You know, it's, like to, it's almost like trying to describe uh, something being more wet. You know, it's wet or it's not. But you know it when you experience it. You know when, it, when you have it, when a, a, a sponge is dripping wet because it's dripping wet. You know when it's dry, when it's dry because you have the experience of it. From a distance, you couldn't tell the difference probably. Maybe that's a silly metaphor, but I think you know what I'm talking about. We have to have this experience. Now, how do we have this experience? What's the vehicle for having this experience of noticing when these things are present or not present? Concentration. What else would that human quality be but concentration? What could it be? Again, we're not getting into, uh, excuse me, we're not getting into anything magical or mystical at all, are we? We're getting into recognizing how to use the vehicle that we have been born with. I almost said given, but it really isn't given, isn't it? No, I don't know who gave this to me. We can get into speculation. We don't do that in the Dhamma. I know that I was born because I'm here. And I'm more and more here because of the Dhamma. So I'm more and more born. I'm more and more giving birth to myself each and every, every moment that I have deeper concentration. Why? Because I can be aware of in a useful way of what's occurring right here and right now. That is the only birth process that Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, concerns himself with. And it's the only birth process that we concern ourselves with. What am I giving birth to in this moment? Saraputta, wise of great, deep and penetrating wisdom, clearly saw the arising, the establishment, and the passing away of these mental qualities present in the fourth jhana. Excuse me. He noticed how these qualities arose, came into play, and vanished. Having entered into the fourth jhana, established in equanimity, abandoning, evaluating even pleasure or pain, internal calm, a pleasant abiding. The qualities of concentration, sensory contact, feelings, perceptions, intention, consciousness, desire, decision, persistence, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention were recognized one after another. Saraputta remained free of attraction or aversion in regards to these qualities. He remained independent, not dependent, independent. Detached, released, associated, and free of any barriers arising from attraction or aversion. Having entered into the fourth jhana, Saraputta understood there is even deeper concentration. He pursued this, this, path, this path and realized that notion. He realized the idea that he had. He fulfilled his idea. There is deeper concentration. There's more for me to go. Furthermore, Saraputta abandoned self-identification with physical form. He abandoned self-identification with external forms, a projection of me, whether it's into the next moment or the next universe or the next dimension. We let go of that notion. He let go of the perceptions of, of, the perceptions of aversion disappeared. Now Saraputta perceives a dimension of even infinite space or infinite consciousness or infinite this, um, the, the, dimension of, the dimension of neither pleasure nor pain, um, the dimension of nothingness. All of those dim dimensions are fabricated non-physical dimensions that the Buddha always taught not to go there. The words that are used are often 
such as infinite consciousness sounds like, wow, I really like to have infinite consciousness. But it's just a distraction. Human beings can't have infinite consciousness. They can have human consciousness that is incredibly useful for describing a human life. But that's it. Saraputta entered and remained in this dimension. The qualities present in all these fabricated dimensions, including those other qualities that are still present in the fabricated imaginary dimensions of sensory contact, feelings, perceptions, etc., they arise and pass away, one after another, no matter where we distract ourselves. Saraputta noticed how these qualities arose and came into play and vanished. Saraputta remained free of attraction or aversion in regards to these qualities. He remained independent, detached, released, associated, and free of any barriers arising from attraction or aversion to any magical, mystical, non-physical realm. I'm just skipping over those parts where it's repetitive about those different realms. Upon this realization, going through, even abandoning his imagination as something that that he should be trying to do as something useful. And that's not to say, and somebody's, I'm going to get an email today. You mean we shouldn't use our imagination? Yes, we should. It's a wonderful human quality. But as far as the Dhamma is concerned, we should not be imagining ourselves in any way. We should desire, skillful desire, Chanda, we should have the, the, the desire to feel and understand who I am right now. And if I can't do that, then I can continue with my Dhamma practice because I know I'll be able to do that. But everybody that's here today has described that uh, to me. Now I got to go back. Saraputta, having abandoned the perception of the dimension of neither perception nor non-perception, he entered and remained in the in the cessation of perception and feelings. We don't stop feeling, but we simply stop using our feelings to describe who and what I am. We've attached, a, we've detached the perception that is normally attached to feelings and coloring our feelings. Now we can simply feel and in that way be a human being because what describes the overall quality of a human being if not feeling? We're designed to feel. We're supposed to feel. What, what, is, what, is, a, what is somebody without feeling? Even if they're animated in some other way, we call them robots. Who would want that? Or in my case, it might be striving so hard to inebriate myself to the point where I couldn't feel anymore. And I tried that. And millions of people died trying to do just that, to not feel anymore. Or to find some way to control their, control their feelings through activity, through anything, golf, sex, buying, could be anything. And human beings, and I talked earlier about how the modern zillionaires figured out a way to best distract us. And we're, we gleefully give away, surrender our minds to all these things that are just out in the world designed to distract us. Again, we do it gleefully. We're happy to do it. We hand over the currency of our own minds. Alvin Toffler said, time is, time is a currency of exchange that makes all things possible. But he didn't understand and he didn't put the caveat on there unless we're distracted because then time is just wasted, isn't it? 
Time is the currency of exchange that makes all things possible, including awakening. It's the best use of time. Upon this realization, the qualities of a mind arising in grasping after cessation, greed, aversion, and delusion were completely abandoned. He's now simply, or this person is now simply a Dhamma practitioner. Fully mindful of his attainment, he regarded the impermanence of all these past qualities. They arose. They became an experience, whether it's just in this moment or something ongoing, something that persists. But eventually they all pass away. Saraputta remained independent, detached, released, dissociated, and free of any barriers arising from attraction or aversion. He now understood there is no deeper concentration. He's now in this space of just of, of permanently established concentration now called the fourth foundation of mindfulness. He pursued this path and realized there is no deeper concentration. If any person were to speak rightly and with skill, were to say Saraputta has attained mastery and perfection of noble virtue, noble concentration, and noble wisdom, the entire Eightfold Path. Saraputta has attained mastery and perfection of the threefold noble Eightfold Path, wisdom, concentration, and virtue. And he has attained noble release. He's gone beyond um, human distraction. Noble release means he's gained understanding of four noble truths. If any person were to speak rightly and with skill, were to say Saraputta is born of the Buddha's words, in this way he is the Buddha's son. When I read, it's still it's so poignant to me. In this way we are the Buddha's children, aren't we? And in, in that he's giving us in a fatherly way his best advice for how to live. That's what parents hope to give to their children if they're capable of it. Out of experience. Out of their own direct experience. And, and now, what is important about what Brahm just said? Because now, through our direct experience, we can do the same. We can do the same as our Dhamma father, if I can just be so, a little bit silly, but did to us. In this way, he is the Buddha's son, his offspring. Saraputta, us, is born of the Dhamma. He became awakened from the Dhamma, us. His inheritance is not of worldly things, this inheritance is my Dhamma. His inheritance is my Dhamma. Think about those words that, that the Buddha was saying 2,600 years ago to one of his disciples and telling those in front of him that this, this man is now like a son to me is what he's saying because he's joined our, fi- our family in such a profound but familial way. He's doing what we all do in his family. Saraputta, my friends, has taken the wheel of the Dhamma, set rolling by me, and he keeps it rolling in authenticity. It's rolling smoothly through time. And again, the Buddha set the wheel of motion, the the Dhamma, in motion only once. Modern Buddhism talks about three turnings of the wheel. That comes out of the Abhidhamma, but it's not something that the Buddha taught, just in case you're thinking of that. And then the Buddha, the Sutta concludes by these typical words. This is what was said by those great, by the great teacher. Those gathered were delighted by his words. That's today's Sutta. Um, it is a bit late. It's nine forty. Why am I trying to do this when it doesn't have a cover? In, in case anybody has to leave, um, let's just be mindful that um, 
the, the sutta was a rather long sutta and to keep our share to a minimum. But I want to ask Julia to share and welcome her to our Sangha physically. She's been joining us for a couple months online. But welcome, Julia. Thank you, John. Um, that was wonderful. Um, a lot of things crossed my, my, through my head on how, like, an example that popped up, like, oh, I didn't make my bed. And then I'm making that, I'm letting that affect my mood. Letting that, even if it's a good positive thing, oh, I made my bed, or I didn't make my bed. It's forming this self of me that at the end of the day, it just like, it sits there like, oh, I didn't make my bed, or I did make my bed, instead of it just being, like, not attaching to the fact that I did or didn't. Yeah. Um, and not letting it, form this ego self of mine. Yeah. So th- that really crossed my head, and that can, like, be anything throughout the day. Um, and, yeah, that's all I have at the top of my head now. Yeah. But it was it's great because I, I do I, – I, I tend to attach to those things to define the – to define my ego. Yeah. It's And it's, it's not freeing yeah. at all. Yeah. Yeah. And you recognize it. Yeah. That's Dharma practice, and that that that's a that's a very um, it's a it's a it's a deep level of jhana to be able to recognize it and understand it. So good for you, and thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. All right, let's go online. Um, where who I can't see. Ah, there's yeah. I wasn't sure. Sammy, Sammy, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you doing? From Denver, Colorado, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's early here still. So yeah, this was this was a great way to start my day, John. It was perfect. Like everything that you said really sunk in, and there were so many lessons. Um, I found it very timely. Um, you know, practice the practicing awareness is the concentration, right? Whether I um feel that I'm being successful and, you know, everything's happening the way it should, or I can recognize that it's not. And I, you know, can just take a breath and go back to that no matter what. So this is great. Yeah. That, and that's just it. And so you're able to do this in in your practice. You recognize these four levels of jhana. Yeah. 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 I'm definitely trying practice, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, again, it's just so important that you recognize it. So good for you. I'm glad you joined us today, Sammy. Thank you so much. Good morning, Mary. Future teacher Mary, soon to be Dhamma teacher Mary. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Um, what kept coming to my mind was, uh, for me, is how this is really a linchpin, uh, a cornerstone. Uh, it's absolutely essential to continue to work in this area for all of us, no matter how long we've been doing this, because the levels of jhana are impermanent. But the the focus on concentration from the cushion to your real life is the only way, in my humble opinion, to interrupt the things that we do that allow us to lose our concentration and therefore continue behaviors that contribute 
whether it's your suffering or or the people around you. And that just seems like the really strong message that I heard and needed to hear today uh, for some things that are on uh, my mind or I'm allowing to be on my mind for an extensive period of time uh, rather than interrupting it, right? Thinking that I need to process this, I need to think through this, I need to get to the solution. I've been like doing that my whole life, right? So interrupting that, even a conversation that David and I had this morning came to mind of, you know, of I need to interrupt this path I'm on because it's um, it's it's distracting me from um, it's distracting me from the practice, quite honestly. And so, having good sits and 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 having the rigor of your practice is one thing. But if bringing it off the cushion and into um, the ability to interrupt you in your real life when you're doing these things is really the, uh, you know, another level of, of direct experience with the benefit of this practice. So that's what I to say. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mary. Uh, Kevin, how are you? Good time. Hello, everybody. Um, nice to meet Sammy, too, now. And uh, I really you know, appreciate and agree with what you said. As I was um, studying this week, this um, to this week, I went back to an audio, audio version of it from 2019, so back into the past. But um, just to listen while I was exercising one day. And it struck me that... Um, John, your whole focus has sort of changed. When I started with you, it was always uh, Shemata Vipassana meditation. And then uh, at some point, maybe three, four years ago, or a couple of years ago, you shifted to Jhana from that, which is, you know, I think it's a distinction without a difference, maybe. But I really am so appreciative of the focus on Jhana. Because it, it is just so important, and it has become more and more important as um, as we utilize this and as I utilize it. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you have any comment on that about the change or whatever, and that may be too much of a distraction or a long discussion for right now. We can take it offline some other time, maybe. But thank you very much for this teaching. Yeah, you know, I'm never averse to a long discussion. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, briefly. <laughs> Where are you, John? You know, you disappeared. (laughs) Back on screen. There you are. So, when I first started restoring the suttas, um, Shemata Vipassana is a common term that, uh, at least common in my circles that I was running with, that described this meditation method. And so there's nowhere where the Buddha talks about his meditation method and gives it an actual name. So jhana is really just short for what shamatha vipassana means. And uh, well, shamatha means literally tranquility or quiet the mind, and vipassana means insight. So it's quieting the mind through insight. But really, jhana is a better word because jhana means concentration. So and then it's the entire practice that rooted in concentration that brings true vipassana. I think you remember the Vipassana structured study we did on 
on those just the three marks of existence and that's what we boil this thing down to to just that to looking at greed aversion and deluded thinking so that's the answer I think it was a little bit longer ago probably five or six years ago um, but your memory is better than mine anyway I should probably count on you yeah this one it was from 2019 and I was uh, surprised that it was so recent and I still mentioned Shamatha in it yeah. Wow. I'm surprised. Yeah, I've been meaning to go back into the the, the truth of happiness and change that, but I, one of these days I will. But. <laughs> <coughs> but yeah, jhana and shamatha vipassana are the same, the same meditation. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Anthony, how are you? Good morning. I, I enjoyed the uh, sutta, and um, I was thinking, you know, it, it's... Um, somewhat paradoxical that the we create fabrications around a practice that was designed to shed shine a light on fabrications yeah. <laughs> and i was thinking when you said it like yeah we could we could approach uh achieving the jhanas like it's a task and then be upset when we don't and be happy when we do yep. and i've actually listened to podcasts where people have debated the number of jhanas and what they are and yep you know, what they've achieved and and they talk about other people's achievement, like they're legends, like, you know, Aaron Judge's batting average. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and we can take that, you know, even further and, you know, start to set standards for what it is to be, like, what's the right Buddhist? How do yeah. they dress? Oh, that, you know, who they associate with? What do they talk about? What events they go to? You know, so I think it's something that's really important to be careful because the subtleties of the practice can itself generate ego. Yeah, again, that, that's the, that's why the practice needs the framework of the Eightfold Path. That's why the Buddha taught it. Because he understood human beings' uh, compulsion, I was going to say tendency, but it's really more a compulsion, to ignore their own ignorance. And another way of saying fabricating your fabrications is to say you ignore your own ignorance. It's, it's part of the word. You know, The word itself describes what it does. You're... Um, we use the world as the as the ongoing distraction to continue our ignorance or to ignore our ignorance, and it works very well at that. You know, and it, it's not right or wrong. It's not it's not the way it's supposed to be, or could be, or should be. It's just what is, and that this is the world we live in. The Siddhartha's brilliance was in just realizing that and not taking it personal. For the you know, I think the first time in human history, or at least the a, a person that could experience life in that awakened state as we define it and also teach it. So I mentioned uh, Jiru Krishnamurti often. Um, he's someone who I believe was in, in our definition an awakened human being, but he did not have the ability to teach it and he didn't use the Eightfold Path. He seems to have been born with certain understandings um, where he developed them rather quickly. But, um, Anyway, that, that's uh, Krishnamurti is kind of neither here nor there, except to say that human beings, at least one, seem to have developed this outside of the Dhamma. But I know for me, I'm glad I have the Dhamma as the framework for my, for my Dhamma study. So thank you, Anthony. I'm so glad you're continuing to heal. I look forward to seeing you on the 18th. Yeah, Laura. me too. How are you, Laura? Yeah. I, does, does, do, you, do you mind being on camera? I should ask. Oh, no, does I'm anybody fine. mind? Bridget, everybody's okay with being on camera? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was just, I mean, we talk about this all the time, and, you know, in the 
suttas, but I was just reminded today yet again that, you know, if we focus too much on just concentration without the framework and the context of the Eightfold Path, then you can still be subjected to, like, the defilements, like greed, aversion, or deluded thinking, like you were saying before, wanting to just be numb if you're depressed or, you know, just, you know, you can still be in a state of concentration, and sometimes I still catch myself doing that, like, if I'm upset about something, I'm just going to concentrate and then not feel or not be here, but if you come back to the Eightfold Path and practice that concentration within that framework, then it's, it makes much more sense, and then that leads to that equanimity and, you know, peace and calm abiding, so. Yeah? Yeah. Just that. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Good morning, Bridget. How are you? Good morning, John. I'm well, thank you. I don't have anything to add, but thank you for the teaching, and I'll take noble silence. I'm glad you joined us. Dhamma teacher wrong. Good morning. Uh, thank you. Um, I was I was reminded through all this description of mind states um, <clears throat> that when I left my like my familiar environment, um, I and which started to look for meditation, I was doing that to because I was dissatisfied with my my state of mind. So I spent a good forty years finding different mind states through different meditations. And um, and always in there, I was really hesitant to um, to teach that to others, and I never quite understood that until I got here and dealt and 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 learned the Dharma through you. <clears throat> And I finally realized that I was dealing with my mind states, and and um, which became a distraction in the end. But I never dealt with my dissatisfaction. And um, once I did that, uh, everything changed. And this whole chase of, of mind states, it still trips me up from time to time. When I'm in, in, in uh, when I'm doing my meditation, I still have to really apply a lot of concentration so that I don't get um, distracted by, by mind states. Whether and you can I like them or whether I don't like them, uh, I just, you know, it's... It's that's an, an ongoing thing, I mean, you know. But, but, yeah, but you know it now. You, I know it now. You, yeah, you can reach into your toolbox and pull out concentration when yeah, you need it. Yeah. I know. Uh, yeah. But it's uh, it's a minute by minute. Um, yeah, no, this is not it. Take a breath. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is not it. Take a breath. You know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, thank you. Uh, 
Thank you for that, that description. You do, you but just do. To hear it time and again, especially in, in this series now, that all these mind states are just fabricated, passing by. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I've meditated for years without, I don't, I don't think I ever heard meditative absorption, but I mean, sometimes for 13, 14 hours a day, and it's just brutal. It's but without some, some goal that you, you can't get. Well, to. I would often fall back on even no matter what they were teaching. I learned, I learned. I don't want to say what it is because I always get in trouble. But I learned a certain meditation methods. Mm-hmm. Really, the first formal meditation method I used, probably the most widely used one in the West, um, and it's it's mantra based and visualization based, and so it's it provides two levels of distraction um, <coughs> that uh, stick. The, the more you can lock in the distraction, the more effective it seems like your meditation practice is. But then you're meditating, and you're encouraged to do ever-increasingly longer periods in this particular practice, oh, within reason, up to a couple hours a day. But again, you're just, you, it's something that a human mind can develop that type of rigidity in it and do that forever. And your, your life just becomes, really becomes that fabricated. Mm-hmm. meditation and you're not living anything in your life anymore you know, your, your, your life literally is over even though it's physically continuing um, is there any insight? I'm sorry, I'm a teacher David nice. yeah and so in that way there's no insight is there? You've, you've, you've secluded yourself from your own life so yeah there's no insight there's no, there's no possibility of understanding anything so point? you please so what's the point? Yeah, there is, there is no point to that life, is there? Yeah. I'm a teacher, Dave. Okay. <coughs> Bless you. Bless you. Thank you. I'm all set. You're all set? Yeah. You've got to get going, too, don't you? And David, David and Mary are moving Elizabeth today. It's a big day, right, Mary? It the is. Thing to move yeah. From Philly to New York. Oh. Uh, yeah. Emptying the nest, but I think the nest has been more or less empty for a while. So. They keep coming. Yeah, yeah. 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 They do, yeah. Let me warn you. <laughs> yeah. But it's, well, I'm not going to. Congratulations. Enjoy your new journey. Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the way to say it. Congratulations on, on uh, a good family. Mm-hmm. You, 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 the two of you are so reflected in your daughters. It's really amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How well you set them up for life, and how how well they're suited to uh, to do it, to do what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Be fun to watch, and through your eyes, as long as I can keep going. <laughs> that's, that's... Well, my Dhamma, my Dhamma practice came in handy while my daughter Elizabeth drove beautifully up the coast from Rome to this island off of Tuscany. They were in charge of our trip for two weeks, so that took a lot of Dhamma practice on my part. (laughs) They did a great job. And and you had a great trip. Oh, a trip of a lifetime. Good for you. Yeah, it was fantastic. I want to hear all about it. Okay, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of, mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on Meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. 
Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision and being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace, everyone. I'll see you Tuesday, David. Have a wonderful day. See you all. Bye. Keep healing, my friend. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.